there's always more. There's what if you don't get asked back next season? What if you don't do this? You know, so there's like this constant worry and worry has been my main concern to this day that I'm still working on. It's like there's and controlling and I'm such a control freak. And it's like, what am I trying to control? Because you can't control anybody or anything other than yourself. Right. And this pandemic definitely made me really have to turn inwards for because I had nothing else to do. Right. I had no other distractions. Luckily, we were still able to do the show. But still, that was interesting in itself as well. But it's like there was still that itch. Like I was like, there's just something that I'm just not getting to. And it's like I had to listen to so many gurus. I mean, like there was it was a bunch of everybody, right? Like mentors that don't even know me that I call mentors that really, they all said one common thing. It's like, nobody makes you happy. Nothing will make you happy. You make yourself happy. Like you need to fill in these voids. And I never knew any of this stuff. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest on the show is Cheryl Burke. You might recognize her from her reoccurring role as a professional dancer on Dancing with the Stars, which she will make her 24th appearance on in just a few weeks. What really inspires me about Cheryl is her recovery journey and her willingness to share so openly. She has gone through and overcome a lot, and the trauma started by witnessing her parents' divorce and being molested all before she was in elementary school. This led to more debauchery as she found herself in and out of toxic relationships, not going to college, and developing unhealthy habits around things such as alcohol. With all that said, there has been one constant in her life, and that has been her ability to dance. Her talents in dance led her to landing a spot on Dancing with the Stars roughly 15 years ago. Cheryl has won two mirror balls and was the first female professional to win on the show. Cheryl's journey with alcohol unfortunately stayed with her throughout most of this process, which included drinking before going on television. Three years ago, it all changed for her when she decided to get sober after her father passed away. She was able to strong arm her way through sobriety until this past summer when she hit a crossroads that led her to join the 12-step community to further her recovery journey. Today, we talk about it all. Cheryl opens up about what happened that made her enter AA after two and a half years of sobriety and how it has helped her. We get into her backstory and what led her to use alcohol as a way to numb the pain. Cheryl shares why even reaching the pinnacle of her career as a dancer left her feeling lonely and miserable. We discuss her comeback story and what types of things have helped her transform the pain into purpose. Cheryl chats about why it was crucial for her to open up emotionally and how it has led to massive growth for herself and her marriage. She opens up about her struggles with body dysmorphia. And of course, we also get into Dancing with the Stars including why this season will be different for Cheryl and more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Cheryl Burke to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to chat with you today. And my hope is that since I'm such a lousy dancer that virtually, <laughs> that since we're like, you know, sitting across from each other virtually, that as a byproduct of that, my dance skills will somehow magically become better after this interview, but we'll totally. see. Totally. I'm going to give you some major dance juju right now. <laughs> Man, you know, I'm really excited to really have this conversation with you because your story is 
is incredibly fascinating. I admire everything you've accomplished, both personally and professionally, and really like your humility. And I think where I'd like to start is you're somebody like myself who got into recovery and you didn't take the path of 12 steps. You didn't go the AA or NA route. And then right. you, you hit a point where you'll be you know, three years sober in, in September. I think it was over the summer where you hit a point where you're really like, you know, toe in the fine line. You felt like this urge that you might want to potentially drink again. And then you kind of just raised your hands up with the help of, you know, people on your podcast and, and friends to say, you know, I think I should just go give this AA thing a shot. So what was going on like a few months ago during the summertime where you really felt the need to, to try a, a different approach to your recovery? Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. That means a lot to me. You know, with this whole 12 step AA thing, you know, we do a weekly podcast with my last dance partner from Dancing with the Stars, AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys and Renee Elizondo. And we're basically the three of us, three different generations of sobriety, right? You've got AJ, who I think is a little over a year, me being about three, a little over three years, and then Renee being sober for like 20 something years, right? And they kept talking about like on our podcast, not trying to like pressure me at all. It was just, that's what our podcast is about. It's about having honest conversations and sobriety. And so I was just like, they kept referring to this thing called like white knuckling or like dry drunk. And it was like, I was like, so what does that mean boys? And it's basically like people who decide to be sober and not do the work. Now I tend to believe that there's so many different ways of doing the work, right? Like I have been in therapy since I was a little girl. Now, is my therapist special? Does she specialize in alcoholism or addiction? No, but this is part of the work, right? Like in general, just being as best as you could be, right? A better version of yourself. And so I, I don't necessarily agree with the terms dry drunk because why is it black or white? But I wanted to just try it out. And I'm, I feel like going back to your question, over the summer, I kind of felt stagnant. I felt like, okay, there were certain things that were triggering me that were that never triggered me before. I never had that urge to drink again. And clearly it was so I can numb. I mean, I always refer to myself as a professional number and I definitely know how to do that. I know how to do anything else, but feel my feelings. And so I think I just became overwhelmed with so many feelings over the summer with, you know, family problems and stuff like that and personal issues. And it was just when I know that when I'm not really working seven days a week, like I do on Dancing with the Stars, I'm very excessive. So it's like, then I have room to, oh my goodness, feel my feelings and like live in my own shit. And it was scary. And so that made me want to drink. And then going to Hawaii with my husband, like you just feel like you want to drink because that's what people do at cabanas and pools and stuff like that <laughs> nowadays yeah. at the adult pool, right? So you, but then I, I noticed though too, like, cause I even then, envision myself doing that and how much respect I would have lost for myself and my journey. And I do take pride in being sober for over three years. And every day that I am sober, I, I have a little bit more and more respect for myself, you know? And, and we were, before we recorded, I was just telling you how much respect I have for you for being Thank that you. person that, you know, you, you went the alternative route and didn't go the 12 step way, which there's frankly, there's many people that do that, but I feel like there's a certain percentage of those people that when they hit that roadblock and they, their recovery program isn't working, they're so stubborn and they're like, oh, well, AA or NA you know, hasn't gotten me this far. So why should I go try that now? Or I'm not an addict. Or when I go in there, there's going to be this sense of shame. And, and that was like one of the 
not hardest. I don't want to say it was the hardest thing for me, but I went to my first AA meeting when I was like seven years into recovery just to support a friend of mine. And I, it was hard for me because I didn't identify like with the addicts because I, I thought mm. that, I mean, yes. Do I think I have addictive tendencies and do I think I was an addict for a good portion of my life? Absolutely. But mm-hmm. I was never somebody who was just like going to identify as a drug addict the rest of my life. I thought that was just part of my story, but right. I can see how that helps. And it serves the AA and NA community for people that get sober through the 12 steps. So what I was, I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see how it can create some sort of disconnect. Did you experience yeah. that at all? You know, well, let me, I hate ask, answering with a question, but do you believe addiction is in a, a disease or do you believe it's, what do you believe with that? Whole thing? I think addiction's a spectrum. Do I think it's a disease for for certain people? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of other underlying causes that play into that. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm trauma we know you had a ton of trauma like growing up right totally yeah you didn't have that would you have gone down the rabbit hole of addiction like who knows right environment totally. stress anxiety just situational stuff trying to fit in like there's so many other things that go into it that by it's the way hard. you can also you can be addicted to running you can right. be addicted to great things you know that are like either way if you're excessive i think you're a, an addict right. but right. i'm not going to label people that's not my business right and, i think and- for me Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the last thing I'll say is, but do I believe that there's a certain percentage of the population that are just hardwired to to have that addictive personality and any taste of alcohol, any taste of a drug, any taste of X, Y, or Z is going to ignite this mm. sensation, this urge, this, this sense of like euphoria, euphoria. Right. Absolutely. Look, I don't think, I think addiction, what's wrong with being an addict? I actually find it quite fun because like I am like all or nothing, you know what I mean? And I find those types of people exciting. Like I find that, that how do you get to your zone of genius if you're just half-assing everything or you're doing a little bit of this and then there's balance. Like I don't necessarily believe in balance, but that could be because I'm a competitor, right? And like all I've been doing is competing my whole life. So in order for you to be great at something, you have to dedicate your life and sacrifice. And I think maybe that has a lot to do with it, but who said the labels is what kills me a little bit. Like who gives a shit. Right. right? But I think with the 12 step program, going back to your question, what it has done, the benefit of that has connected me to my spirituality because Mm -hmm. this whole God thing was really woo woo. I I'm back. I was a baptized Catholic, right? My mom, I come from Catholics (laughs) and I, that was the disconnect for me. It was so hard for me. I remember going to church and Sunday school. Like I didn't understand a word what the priest was saying. Like, I just couldn't understand it. Everything was very, I don't know. I hate to say this. I mean, culty though. Like it was just a little bit too, I was never religious, but you don't have to be religious to be spiritual and you don't have to be religious to believe in a higher power or something greater than yourself. And I think that that has been something missing in my life that I wasn't even conscious of until I did the 12 step program. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I was wondering what was, what was, what did AA or what has AA brought you that you, what you were doing didn't, mm-hmm. right? Cause mm-hmm. you, you managed to, to do okay. Right. For like two and a half mm-hmm. years. So what kind of things like, were you doing to keep yourself away from alcohol? I mean, were you just purely like white knuckling it to, just to stay away from alcohol? Or were you using things like exercise therapy, meditation? Like what kind of things were you doing? Well, the reason for me stopping in the first place was because it was an everyday thing for me. I became so just nothing worked, right? Like I could drink literally so much Tito's and soda and lime. And that was my drink of poison of choice that 
nothing would happen. And my father passed away. He was an alcoholic, passed away about two and a half years ago, three years. And I made a promise to myself and I was just like, look, I'm either going to fall down this rabbit hole and I'm going to check myself into the nearest rehab rehabilitation center, or I'm going to just quit cold turkey. And I also knew that I never went a day without drinking. Like it was seven days a week. My fiance now husband at the time was like, started to kind of like voice his concern a little bit, but I was just like, whatever. Like he was voicing the concern of like, you don't even look tipsy. Like, and this is God, how many drinks have you had? And then I remember trying to have a drink when I got back, when we got back from my dad's funeral and I just broke out into hives. And so what I equate with to that is my subconscious, like my body was no longer, it was rejecting that alcohol, right? And what I was nervous was I was either going to go and try something harder and something completely different because obviously it was a numbing device. So I made a promise to myself that I was just going to see if I can even go like two days without drinking. And I didn't even tell my husband at the time, right? So it was just, I don't know, it was this kind of like snowball effect. And I don't know if it's because I'm a competitor at heart, but like I was competing with like, oh, really? Can you do it? Can you actually do it? You know, like, can you do a week? Can you go sober without, can you completely not have a sip of alcohol for a month? So it was this competition I had with myself, which sounds kind of crazy. But at the end of the day, the after effects of being clear headed and being able to get so much more done and to have conversations and to want to work on myself because I had all these voids and missing and like this emptiness inside of me that I would fill up with Tito's, you know, instead. And it obviously isn't sustainable. So where do you think things got really bad for you? Like, do you believe that things escalated from dancing with the stars? Cause here you are now you're faced with tons of competition and the pursuit can be addicting too. Like once you win that first competition, it's like, it becomes addicting. It feels really good. And you're like, I need more of that. I need more of that. And you're being judged on a a weekly basis, you're stressed, the amount of time mm-hmm. and effort, but then you have this past, right? Where you experience a, a ton of trauma growing up. So would you say, as you look back now, what really caused the downfall with you and alcohol? First of all, I didn't drink until I moved here to Los Angeles when I was 21, right? Cause I lived a very Olympian like lifestyle, right? So even though, you know, it's not an Olympic sport, technically it's still a sport and all my life was dedicated to dancing. So when I got this job that I was not really, I wasn't going to take, but it just happened to be that my ex partner slash boyfriend wanted to cheat. So he was just like, yeah, go to LA, go to LA. Thank God for him, you know, because I would have not taken the job if that wasn't the case. But anyways, back to your question. It really, for me, drinking was because I had social anxiety. I still do. I still deal with that. I also was, I, I guess you can say that I'm a little introvert. I don't believe any, somebody's either introvert or extrovert. Like I'm, it's definitely in the middle, but I didn't know how to receive as crazy as this sounds because I can dance in front of millions of people the attention that I was receiving when I moved here to Los Angeles I also was the first time that I was independent you know ballroom is a man's sport it's they never really I guess like it's not the woman giving advice no one really cares it's all about it's male driven, you know, and it's very dominating. And I, for the first time was being asked, like, what, what do you like? What do you want to do? Like these interviews, I would have to drink myself crazy before doing anything. It was just my, I was trying to find my own identity for the first time. I didn't even know what my favorite color was when I was 21 moving here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it seems that you just never really had a chance to, to truly grow up. Because no, but yet you know, I grew up too too fast at the same time. Exactly, that's what I mean. Yeah. You, you see that a lot. I think in the entertainment industry, when 
when people start to experience stardom and, and fame and they're into this environment where they're constantly getting attention and they're constantly, you know, being lifted up and they're con- they're just busy and they're not able to like live their lives as teenagers, as kids. And it seemed like that was the way for you. And you had all this trauma that you mm-hmm. never really fully dealt with. It seemed like, you know, you, your parents yeah. got divorced, your dad cheated on your mom, you know, you were molested. Then that led to you, you know, having toxic relationships Horrible with men, yeah. right? And then mm-hmm. you get, you don't, you don't go to college or you're, you're partying, you know, regularly. And then you get on dancing with the stars when you're in your early twenties. So like, you never really had time to recover from your childhood. Do you think that that, as you look back mm-hmm. now too, like, and you've done all this work on yourself, therapy, even in the 12 steps that a lot of that was the catalyst for this void that was missing inside of you. Yeah. You bring up a great point. Actually. It's so funny. You just did that whole timeline. And for the first time, someone did that for, for me, instead of me explaining it to them. So it was interesting to hear what, what it's all about, right? And digesting it. But, you know, I was always put into therapy when I was a, when I was a little girl. Obviously, I had no choice, right? My mom wanted me to go to therapy. I There's a part of me that I don't even remember that my life back then, right? So like all I remember, and this is what happens when someone is traumatized to a certain degree, you just forget and you don't want to remember. And I found it strange because when I would dance and I danced, started ballroom at 11, that was like my way to unleash whatever I was feeling without using words. So it was like therapeutic movement for me. And yet I had, I hated myself. I didn't love myself. I had sex when I was way too young. I grew up way too fast. I was constantly looking for validity from men, horrible men that didn't treat me right. And I didn't even know where to start. I just remember partying one of the nights here in Los Angeles with a few friends. And one of my friends um, back then recommending that I go see a therapist. And then, so that didn't even start until I was like 24, 25. So I was just this like person with their head cut off. First of all, the fact that I could even go into a nightclub without like, you know, having to ask my mom or my dance coach, it's like, what, this is not a healthy (laughs) necessarily environment, right? Like literally all of us ballroom dancers, the OGs, at least we come here. It's like Melrose place. I don't know, for those of you that are listening, you may not know what Melrose Place is, but like, it's like we live in this big freaking beautiful place in the Palazzo and we are just partying our faces off. And I just took it to the next level because I couldn't even talk like this to anybody without having booze in my system. I remember doing E! News and co-hosting and Jason Kennedy. I was still hot. I was wearing a mic and I was drinking tequila at seven in the morning. So I was freaking nervous. And he totally not, I don't think intentionally, he was just like, Cheryl, are you drinking tequila? And I was like, that was like the, I'll never forget that moment, right? Because it really put everything into perspective. Like, wow, I definitely have a problem. Mm. <laughs> and I want people who are listening to this to really pay attention to like this part of our conversation. Because a lot of people will ask, like, how does somebody like yourself or other people that have, have quote unquote made it in Hollywood and have a significant amount of fame and notoriety, like, like why do they go down that path? And mm. I think a lot of it, obviously comes from trauma that they never, mm-hmm. people never deal with when they're younger, but it's also like, I believe there's like this what's next thing in life where you think about in, in your life, you start dancing when you're super young, you experience you know, like, like all these massive hardships as a young girl and as a teenager, and then dancing becomes the way to fill that void and, and mask a lot of that because it kept you busy. And then you make it to dancing with the stars and you've pretty much like gone up the mountain of success and dancing. Like, like it's hard to top 
winning Dancing with the Stars as a dancer. That's like everyone's dream as a dancer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. all right, well, what's next? It's hard to top that. So you're constantly- and it's hard to also transition, right? right. Like rebrand. Exactly. So you're constantly trying to measure your success based on that, which is like the the, the highest moment of your life. Mm-hmm. So if you don't win, or if something goes wrong, or if there's something that that happens during that time, it's a setback. Like you're forced to deal with that. And then when you oh, deal with sure. that, tons of other things kind of come up, you know, with that, and you don't realize it, you know, until that moment. And I think for you, it, it seems. Let me go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I said it just seems that you had all the success with Dancing with the Stars, and then you had this come to Jesus moment, I think, if you will, mm-hmm. where you were like, all right, I'm either going to, and you said this earlier, I'm either going to go to rehab and fix this addiction, or I'm just going to stop cold Turkey, or I'm going to go way off the deep. And like, you knew in that moment that something was off. Yeah. I was missed. There's so much missing. There was like, I was just not happy no matter what, not nothing um, in the outside world. Even if I won twice in a row and I like, from the outside looking in, it looks like I should be not complaining about a thing, right? But there was, it was still very lonely. It was very lonely. It was sad. It was like this feeling of emptiness. And no matter how much therapy I'd go to, it just didn't matter because what I was missing was acknowledging the fact that I had a freaking problem in the first place, right? Like, and also, I didn't want to keep blaming my molester. Like, there comes a point where you have to be like, okay, that's my past. And it doesn't define who I am today. It's just a part of me. And you can blame it all you want and make excuses for your behavior. But at the end of the day, again, you have to live with yourself. And so how far does that get you? And so there was always something more in that sense. Because I always knew like, okay, in my career, I'm, yes, successful, absolutely. But you're right, coming from a mother who's Asian, there's always what's what's plan A through Z. Cheryl, you know, so there's no way for me just to live in the moment or even truly be happy. There's always more. There's what if you don't get asked back next season? What if you don't do this? You know, so there's like this constant worry and worry has been my main concern to this day that I'm still working on. It's like there's and controlling and I'm such a control freak. And it's like, what am I trying to control? Because you can't control anybody or anything other than yourself. Right. And this pandemic definitely made me really have to turn inwards for, because I had nothing else to do, right? I had no other distractions. Luckily, we were still able to do the show, but still, that was interesting in itself as well. But it's like, there was still that itch. Like, I was like, there's just something that I'm just not getting to. And it's like, I had to listen to so many gurus. I mean, like, there was, it was a bunch of everybody, right? Like, mentors that don't even know me that I call mentors, that really, they all said one common thing. It's like, Nobody makes you happy. Nothing will make you happy. You make yourself happy. Like you need to fill in these voids. And I never knew any of this stuff. So what were some of the pivotal things as much as, as comfortable as you feel sharing that you yeah. did to deal with the sexual trauma, to deal with the infidelity with your parents and the divorce and the toxic relationships? Like when you had that moment where you, you realized that the alcohol, the dancing, the fame, the success just wasn't doing it anymore. What were some of the the things that you were forced to go back and work on? Feeling my feelings. Mm -hmm. I've been in also in the Asian culture, especially at my, in in my family, it's like vulnerability equals weakness, Mm -hmm. right? So there was no, this whole thing of feeling your feelings. It was so weird, but in dance, I could do it because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to show emotion. And it was always very organic for me. It was never put on, but like, 
than to have to like hear my thoughts and just recently finding out that we're not our thoughts, you know, like stuff like that. But then that alone, just saying that I'm not my thoughts, being able to understand that has really definitely lifted off a lot of weight off my shoulders for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that's super common with people is the, is our inability to be comfortable with, with sitting in the, in the feelings, with feeling the feelings, because right, we, right. Mm-hmm. we think when we feel discomfort, we feel sadness or we feel anger, we feel stress or depression. We think it's all of a sudden just a bad thing. There's something wrong with us. And in reality, it's just a normal part of life. I mean, unfortunate things happen to every single one of us. There's varying degrees of that. Mm-hmm. But and then not to judge yourself, right? Because of, of the feeling, right? And not to judge yourself and just know that, like, you can't change the past. You can't change that feeling. You can just change how you respond to that feeling. And most people, when they get those feelings, they want to numb it asap. That's why they grab totally. a bottle of wine. That's why they move on to the next relationship. That's why they eat that chocolate cake. That's why they go to spend a bunch of money that they don't have because. They want to get themselves to feel good in that moment as fast as they can. But in reality, what happens, we all know, like, okay, when you eat that chocolate cake, you feel good for about 15 seconds. Right. And then you have, and then you weigh yourself the next day and you're like, God damn it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's that, but I think the bigger thing that that really gets people is this, this feeling that they know they could have done better. They know they could have, or that they think that. Or if they think that they can numb and they'll never come back. But let me tell you from experience, it comes back even more. Like it's just hard, hardcore comeback. Like it's just, it becomes to the point where you're just an angry person. Like I would lash out on people like randomly. And it's like, people think that you're crazy. And then you start to believe you're crazy. But then you're realizing, wait a second, this is coming from somewhere. It's because I actually never felt whatever I needed to feel in my past for whatever reason. So what were some of the feelings that you've really had to feel over the last few years and get really comfortable with about yourself that you feel played out into your addictive tendencies? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Great question. Okay. Well, I know this sounds crazy, but like just feeling this, the feeling of wanting to cry and letting myself cry. So I've, definitely would do anything to just not cry, right? Like there was that totally for some reason, you know, would make me really vulnerable. And if anyone knows me, and maybe this is how people perceive me is like, people think that I'm a hard ass or whatever, I have this wall up. And it's because I do, I do have a wall up. But if anyone knows a little bit about 
mental health or any type of psychology behind that. It's because I'm super insecure and I'm scared and I live in fear about uncertainty. And there's so much behind it all, right? And even just knowing that, it has made me not judge as so many people, right? Like we're all we're all going through it, whatever. Like we all have a common story. It could be different levels, different levels, different degrees. But like, I think what has helped so much for me is just acknowledging it. Like I have so many family members that won't acknowledge the trauma, right? And when you do that, I see what they are, what they've done to numb. And there's only so much you can do left, right? Before you like, God forbid, die. Because it's like, that's how bad it is. And it's like, it will always come and haunt you at the end of the day. And, you know, another feeling for me is anger and being okay to be angry and say that and also being okay to say how I feel when it comes to disappointment, because I didn't want to disappoint the other person, but it's okay to feel like, look, it's a feeling that will pass, right? The feeling doesn't stay that long if you just feel it. And you can't change anybody's feelings. So if you're in a fight with your spouse, and they get upset because of the feeling that you have that that really it doesn't, it's a no go, like, this is a feeling and everyone's right to their own feelings. And the, yeah, you, you hit on so many good points there. And I think, you know, feelings get this bad rap, especially like the quote unquote negative ones, anger, sadness, yeah. depression, and they could, I mean, really they're, they're just signals, they're, they're signals to your body and they can be a good thing, mm-hmm. right? Cause if you're angry, mm-hmm. it can move you to a point of, of action where you're like, okay, I've had enough with the way I've been eating. I'm so angry with myself that I'm going to start eating better. Or I'm so angry with this, the way I've. tolerated this relationship in my life that I'm going to move on. But what happens is anger can also be something that brings people down because when you're angry, you say things that you don't mean, and that can ruin a relationship. When you're angry, you, you know, sometimes people tend to get more violent when -hmm. you're angry, you tend to yell and raise your voice. So all these things that can, in a way, you know, bring the quality of your life down. If you're not careful when it happens repetitively, but it can also be something that's positive. Same with sadness. It's like, you know, when you're right. sad about something that happens, it also gives you an opportunity to reflect, right? And say, okay, even though I'm sad right now in these moments, maybe it's a breakup. Like I'm sad, but like, what are some of the good times? Or or why right. am I sad? Like, But what- why is sad is such a bad thing. Like I remember, I, I see yeah. moms, I see moms say, stop crying, stop crying. Right. It's like, no, 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 no. Let them cry. Let them feel for God's sakes. Like, we label things again, going back to labeling, like we label things as good or bad, or like you shouldn't be doing this in front of people. It's like, no, 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 no. You should be crying just as much as you should be laughing and you should be angry as much as you're happy. And this is the beautiful thing about feelings, right? It's just like, it's that emotional, beautiful roller coaster. And why is it a bad thing? And then going back to what you were just saying, <clears throat> this goes back to reacting versus responding, which is something I'm still working on <laughs> during therapy for sure, because I, you know, because of the trauma, just to rewind a little bit, my mom thought I was deaf, you know, because I'd never talked not one word until I was like, maybe four or five. And my mom took me to a hearing specialist and basically said, okay, it's probably the trauma and the divorce that she, you know, witnessed and endured. And maybe you should take her to therapy. And I remember how I there's also being two languages being spoken at home. I was basically raised by my nanny who only spoke Tagalog, which is the Filipino language. My mother was busy working all the time. And there was this sense of like, I was a very, I was, I was great at observing, right? The situation. I was exposed to certain things that I probably shouldn't have, but I just never talked. And now I can't shut up, but 
there's a difference, right? Of like reacting versus responding, which is fascinating because how can you learn if you don't listen, right? Like there, that is something too, that the program has the zoom 12 step program has been amazing for me because you mute yourself and it's pretty fascinating when you mute yourself because then you have no choice but to listen and you can't talk over people in that program. You can't put in your two cents. You know, it's like, you got to give everyone each their own time, individual time to talk. And it's fascinating. And I've been definitely trying to work on listening more for sure. Yeah. I know. I don't even know why I brought that up, but anyway, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> No, you're, you're right. I think in our ability to be able, I think, I think what separates people from being good in life and being great in life is to the degree in which we're able to listen when people, other people are talking. And I think if we can spend twice as much time listening than us talking, I think we'll be so much better off because I think when you listen, you're able to understand, you're able to connect with people, you're able to have compassion, you're able to develop empathy. And that at the end of the day is like the gateway to building long lasting and meaningful relationships. And, and so, and along those same lines, I want to get into tactics a little bit. Like, so now you, you know, you're, you've been through therapy, but by both by yourself and also, also with your husband. And it seems that you have a pretty healthy, you know, marriage now, so to speak, but what are some of the things that you've really had to work on with yourself being that your idea and identity around relationships has been so warped for most of your life, given your childhood and given the relationships you were in, in your younger years. And, and even like a lot of the promiscuous activity, you know, throughout, you know, your twenties and stuff, like what are some of the things you've really had to work on for yourself to make this marriage thrive? Are you a therapist? Uh, (laughs) You're asking really great questions here. (laughs) Well, funny you ask. Yes. So I go through jealousy still. I definitely have those feelings of wanting to control the situation or my husband, sorry, husband. And I definitely love micromanaging and I love, I don't know. I notice how I get really, it's like, okay, so we just figured this out too. I'm, I'm anxious attachment and he's avoidant attachment, right? So it's like those two actually end up always marrying each other, which is really crazy to me. And so my anxiety drives him awake sometimes, right? Like there's just, that's just what it does. Like if someone was to be constantly on you, it's like, of course you're going to run for the hills. And so, but I realize that all of this shit that I make up in my head, I start to believe it, right? Like you start to believe your own reality, your own fiction. And then I start to react and I've noticed, and this is another thing I've been trying to work on is like the reaction. And I've noticed it's for me, it's like run for the hills, leave, leave, leave. But then at the end of the day, what are you leaving? You're going to end up in the same fucking situation again, five minutes later, you know? And it's like, there was always the blaming, the blaming, the blaming, but really it all starts with you. Everything starts with you. Like everything starts with you. And there's a reason for people being together. And, you know, they say that whole thing with a mirror and it's like, it's very true. It's very true. And it teaches you a lesson. Now it's up to you if you want to, you know, take it all in and learn or run away and go ahead and have the same type of relationship in the future. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand, the anxious and avoidant um, attachments, they, they attract each other because they're polar opposites, right? One wants right. to be, once they're alone time and the other one, like kind of likes to be all over you at times. Right. Uh-huh. And, and like one of the common things for those listening, when you'll know like how this works is like, if somebody who's the anxious attachment will text the avoidant, 
and the avoidant like doesn't respond. Doesn't respond. Oh, so rude. <laughs> and then the, they're probably and they're like off like working or in meetings, but you'll think that they're leaving you, right? And then you'll they're start cheating text- for yeah. sure. Cheating. You keep yeah. texting and texting and texting, and then that plays into this whole unhealthy dynamic where now you've got this story made up in your head. General that- hospital in my head. Yep. Yeah, and this person's the, the avoidance coming back and being like, "Wait, what?" Like I was just working. I was in a meeting. Like, here's my phone, right? I was on the toilet, for God's sakes. Like, yeah, right. I mean, it could be anything. And then you're like, yeah, right, yeah, right. And it's just, it's exhausting. And this is another thing with the 12-step program. It's like, what has helped me too, it's I'm trying to get out of that vicious cycle, right? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who did it, who started it, it just doesn't matter. It's like, this is where your faith comes in and this, and just knowing that it's all going to be okay. Like I'm constantly living in fight, flight, or freeze since I was a little girl. I don't think I know any different, right? Right. I really would have to untrain my brain. And I'm still trying to, because everything is, I'm very, I'm very, what's it called? Hypervigilant, right? So like constantly, and now ballroom dancing as a competitor, not necessarily on the show, it trained me to even be more hypervigilant floor craft. You have a hundred couples there and you're just constantly like, just, I noticed, I just noticed to this day, everything to the point where it's unhealthy. And I feel like I, my life is in danger, but lately when situations like that come up or like, if my husband's just trying to show affection and then I all of a sudden start twitching, it's like, Cheryl, are, is your life in danger? Like I have to actually ask myself that because everything is always such a high and a low. And I'm trying to find that, that place of just being content and knowing that that's not boredom. <laughs> right. No, you're, you're spot on. And I think at the end of the day, like when we're, we're able to, to really like work on ourselves and look at our deepest, darkest secrets and, and be okay. I mean, not that like sometimes mm-hmm. they, they, they're good, but just being okay with where we're at and just using that as a compass to know, mm-hmm. you know, where you want to move forward and whether that is with your, in your personal relationship with yourself or in your marriage or with friends or what have you. I mean, I think that's like, the spice of life is this continual yeah. pursuit and journey of wanting to better yourself. Because I think the two things for yourself I, though, right? right? Like yeah, exactly. For yourself. for yourself. Yeah. And two of the things that we consistently chase that are impossible to have are certainty and perfection. Yeah, right. I know. And, and that's hard. It's to so hard real, to have that come to Jesus, especially as a competitor. Like, right. For sure. And so speaking of both of those certainty and perfection. How did you deal with being on dancing with the stars, being somebody who you said, you know, you, you were insecure, you had body image issues. I know you've talked about, and mm-hmm. just this, this feeling of, of less than yet at yeah. the same time, like your career is, is depicted based on a matter of like seconds, like one, like one, like one wrong move to the right or to the left, like, you could cost mm-hmm. you like losing a season, the mirror then, ball, right? <laughs> yeah, and then you're being judged on a weekly basis, like literally on a scale of one to ten, based on literally how you're <laughs> like behaving on a certain week on your job. So, how did you deal with a lot of the insecurities that that that, the, that came along with being on the show? I'm still dealing with them. I'm not even gonna lie. I mean, like when it comes to body image, man. Like, first of all, I was outed, blasted. When I was still dur- during a season when I danced with um, the Olympian runner, Maurice Green, I'll never freaking forget it. It's I'm going through PTSD to this day to say that I'm cured or to say that I don't think twice before putting a costume on or go through my 
freaking like ups and downs of just like feeling worthless because I have a little, you know, roll on my back. Like it's, it's not uh, fun, right? This is not fun, but this has been my life since I was competing. My coach would weigh me. I'd have weigh-ins. Like I was a boxer, like that's not normal, right? Like I would be on these Hollywood diets. It was like a liquid diet and I would travel with a scale. And this is why I don't weigh myself anymore because it's like, it has consumed my life, but this has been just a different degree. It's been constant validation, right? Like what my mom and I can thank her to this day saw was that I was never good at school. I was always very street smart, not necessarily book smart, but I loved to dance. And she made sure that she supported me in that passion. But again, there's this excessiveness to me, right? To any competitor, to any person who wants to win any at anything, of course, you know, there has been to this extreme to why I had to turn inward and figure out how to do this without getting a 10 from Carrie Ann Anaba, you know, to define my night or the, the rest of my week. It all starts with you. It's like, I want to be okay if I have to hang up my dance shoes in the near future, which I'm going to have to. Like, let's just be real. I'm 37 years old. Women in the dancing business, especially in ballroom, retire at 30. Like, I'm not necessarily loving the way my hips feel right now. And yeah, like I, I only like to be as good as I can. And when I see that I'm not because of whatever it is, then I'm, it's my time to just leave. So I'm trying at this point, there's this weird transition I'm going through where it's like, okay, so let's say it all stops, right? So what is it that makes me happy? What do, what's my passion in life and what do I love, right? without having to shake my ass on television <laughs> and have someone hold up a paddle for God's sakes. All right. So we're going to get deep here for a second. So it, it seems, I mean, from what I, from what I gather from what you're sharing is that the, your, your, the, your body image issues and, and your, your identity got wrapped so close or your identity became so in, in tune with like how you looked as a person on TV, just based totally. on, like you're judged on how you look, you're judged on how you move, you're judged based on like how you move this way or how you move that way. You're judged based on, or, how or is the press going to say right. something like I, I got fat over the hiatus? Like that is the thing for me. It's like, that's crazy, but it's true. I don't right. want that again. And I think what tends to happen is people's self-worth and identity mm-hmm. gets so caught up in the way that they look and the way that mm-hmm. others perceive them that it can become toxic. And I don't, and I also, I also want to say that I think it's important to take care of your body. Like I think you should, people should still exercise and try to eat well because it's good for your health. And, and you're never going to, you're never going to hear somebody say, Oh, I feel like crap because I eat well. And I exercise where people feel like crap is where they, that becomes their identity in their entire life. It's almost like that's like their God is their body and their, their diet and everything. But you have to think about this really quick. Sorry to interrupt. I'm sick, right? Like, so when it comes to body image, I have body dysmorphia, right? So it's like at the end of the day, I'm even, I'm still on birth control, right? right. Like, and that, that is poison. Like I'm, I'm choosing to poison myself because when that whole fat thing happened, I actually consciously got off birth control thinking I was going to lose weight, but I ended up retaining 15 pounds of water weight. And because of that one incident, until I hang up my dance shoes for good, there's no way I'm getting off birth control. But of course my husband and I would love kids, but how the right. hell, right? right? Like, and so there's certain things that like, I am willing to sacrifice my own. And it sounds crazy. I did a YouTube video about this. Just like, listen to the way I'm 
talking right now. Like it doesn't even matter to me. All it matters is this is right now in this season coming up. It's so crazy. That's so, like, I'm actually talking, I'm like feeling like I have two words of knowledge right now, but it's like, I would never give that advice out to anybody. Right. Well, no. I guess we're, we're, well, yeah. And, and, and thank you so much for sharing that and being vulnerable. And it, it takes a lot of courage to open up and, and kind of admit that. And I think, you know, where I was going with, with that is it seems like your identity, like Cheryl's identity has been depicted by the way you look, the way you dance, success on dancing mm-hmm. with the stars. And it seems that you've had to strip a lot of that away to find out who you really are. So like, have you been able yeah. to really understand like who, is, like who is Cheryl Burke at the core? Like take away the dancing, take away the looks, take away the attention. Like who is Cheryl Burke? Vulnerable, sweet, caring, loving. I'm a great friend. I'm a great wife. Um, definitely, you know, loyal and someone who just wants to be loved and to love and to be heard and to see and all of that. Like I just am this really quiet person who just enjoys simple things in life. Like I can diamond paint. This is his new addiction. As I said, I'm an addict, but there's like I rhinestone a canvas and like that just brings me so much joy. You have no idea. Mm. Like I, I would it. be an arts and crafts woman. <laughs> Yeah. If I wasn't on, like, I seriously would probably be just a fan watching Guessing the Stars as I was doing my canvases and working a nine to five job, probably. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the beauties of when you hit that point where, you know, like time is up, like, like I'm done wearing the masks. Mm-hmm. I'm done wearing yeah. the mask of trying to fit in. I'm done wearing the mask of trying to be pretty for people who judge, judge me for the way I look. Right. I'm done wearing the mask for social media and go on and on. And your face, like it's you versus you and mm. you're, and you're forced to get truly freaking naked not just physically naked emotionally spiritually naked and and afraid yeah yeah and and spiritually and mentally naked and it's like all right like what does doug really believe about himself what are my values what are my beliefs what do i actually want to do not what the world tells me to do like what do Mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. actually like what kind of relationships Mm -hmm. do i want what do i want to achieve and i think when you can get that vulnerable and you can rip that freaking bandaid off and it's going to hurt for a while. It's going to be very yeah. painful to do this, but that 10 pain, when you do this, that 10 pain, as you begin to work on yourself will subside and, it'll, and the meter will come down. It'll go from a 10 to an eight to six to four, maybe hang out at like a two or a three. But what happens with most people, Cheryl, is they'll rip the bandaid off just like halfway and they'll still like, you know, take the validation and do what other people uh, do what other people think they should do and that sort of thing. And that pain just becomes like a constant six or seven for the rest of their lives. But and how think- do you not do that? How do you not feel good when someone does give you validation? Like, how do you not have any expectations as those gurus say, like to have any expectations, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. So don't have any, it's like, that is just really hard. Well, and I think there's, it's not black or white. I, I think See, I think validation can be great. I mean, right? I think it can be good. I think can, it's how you, I guess, how you internalize it. it, right? I think if it's right. if it's what fills you up, and you're like the person who looks in the mirror and feels like crap about yourself, but you're going out on social media like taking oh, selfies no. just for the sake of getting attention or faking this or faking your happiness, then you're only kidding yourself, right? Yeah, and by the way, you can smell it from a mile away. I hate fake right. people, but I think like if you're doing like a good thing and you're out there and you're grinding and you're you're sharing your message and you're doing good work and you're happy with the way you are inside and somebody like pats you on the back like go get me more of that 
Like and it's totally. like you do because you're as long as you're not doing it for the sole purpose of getting the, the pats on the back and you're doing it because you truly like it and you feel comfortable and it's like who you right. are at your core, then I don't I honestly I don't see a I don't see a problem with that. And even better, like in service of it, like yeah. in service of somebody other than yourself. I think that that has been something for me that has filled me up without anything materialistic, you know. Yeah. But where was I going? Oh, so I got I, I want to kind of put a bow on this conversation of body image because there's a lot okay. of people. That struggle with this. There's a lot of people that their level of happiness, the way they feel about themselves, their self-esteem is built off the way they look in the mirror. So like, do you have any tips or something that you may be done in your own journey that might help yeah. somebody who is despite, you know, I mean, just who somebody who's looking in the mirror and solely basing their self-worth and their happiness based on how they look in the mirror. Well, look, I'm not going to say that I can even am qualified to give advice at the moment because I'm still working through it. But I just want everyone to know that they're not alone, first of all, right? right? Like we all have our own struggles, but also what you see on TV, what you see in magazines, what you see on social media, that is just not real, right? It's just not real. Like, I'm sorry. You know, a society today, a size zero is what people are aiming for. And it's like, it's just not healthy. And you don't ever want to put yourself in a, a situation where maybe you won't be able to have kids or you won't be able to, you know, live a healthy life, even though you could have, you know, it's like, you just want to feel good. And only, you know, what that feels like. If you feel good, then you will look good. You will look good because it's coming from the inside out. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're right. Like society puts these hyper unrealistic expectations. It's crazy on the way that we should look. And it's created this facade of what happiness looks like. It's like, Oh, take the selfie and be a size zero with a smile. And, and that's the way Well, take the selfie and then face tune yourself. So no one recognizes you. That's even worse. It just gets worse. Right. And that becomes like an addiction in itself because like, totally, the filter... I'm, I'm definitely an addict of it. Right. Definitely will admit that. Right. And that's where the problem you know, lies, right? It's not the sense that you, it's not, a, it's not the matter of looking good. It's like, okay, like, how is it impacting your life? Like, like I heard the definition of, ex- of addiction was something like one of the definitions. I know there's many was continued use to, despite adverse consequences. Yes. And if you're continuing to take certain pictures or you're continuing to eat, to eat a certain way, and it's negatively impacting your health and your life, then it's time to maybe take a second look yeah. at what you're doing. And, if, and for me, it was, it was a rude awakening. And I've talked about this before where fitness and eating well like, saved me from addiction. Like if I didn't start working out when I was in jail, mm-hmm. I would be dead right now. And yeah, that only that. got me so far. Right. And I got you couldn't to a- do one push up. You said you couldn't do yeah. one push up. No, no, or- no, I couldn't do one push up. And I was so caught up in this idea that if I didn't like, if I like cheated on my workout plan, or if I cheated on my diet, that I was going to automatically go back to the dug of before because mm-hmm. I'm so logical, you know, I'm so like type A when it mm-hmm. comes to that stuff Yeah, that I, I found myself like traveling to California when I would go for conferences with like frozen chicken and tuna fish on the plane. Wow. Yeah, I hear you. And I found myself miserable because I was like, why can't I be out eating with my friends? And why am I in the hotel mm-hmm. by myself? eating this disgusting bland chicken breast and like steamed broccoli. Like, why am I doing this? Or why am I somebody who thought suffering? Yeah. Yeah. I I thought that having big biceps and having a six pack was the key to happiness. And, and while it's cool and it it definitely can be obviously a sign of good health, if that's what fills you up on a daily basis, that cup 
gets empty very, Quick. very fast. <laughs> yeah. You may not have a lot of friends either. I mean, if you do, they're probably also six packers themselves, but God knows. I mean that it is, it's very shallow. It's not to say anything. I mean, look, it is, it's great. When I see old pictures of myself and I'm like in the best shape ever, I'm like, Oh God, I still had problems then though, by the way, like there's nothing that's going, I could be a size zero, which I'll never be. That's not my body type. But like, even if I did get there, it's not going to define my happiness, right? Like you're sacrificing. My body is shaped in a curvy way. I've got hips. And if I were a size zero, I'd be doing it in an unhealthy way. And there was also a point where my addiction to alcohol, I thought for some reason, if I just drink instead of eat, then I'm going to definitely look dehydrated the next day, which means that I won't, that I'll look all cut and jacked, right? Because of the, it's so sick. It's so sick. And it's like, it really just doesn't define you. You're right. It doesn't. Right. And that, and that's what, if, if I can just leave the audience with that in that, you know, it's not like an excuse not to exercise or not to, to no. eat well. It's like, but when, I, again, it came to like, you know, Cheryl's talked about, you know, her side of things. And I've talked about mine. It literally, I had a come to Jesus moment where mm-hmm. I, I was done. And yeah. I had a point in my recovery where I was like, I needed something else because I, the fitness only got me so far. The, the vanity only got me so far. The success only got me so far. And I was forced to really address the deep rooted stuff in my life that I thought I was, that I thought I was past. I thought it was over mm. just because I found some other coping mechanisms. Mm. And I, I feel like if you're in a place right now where you're finding yourself like addicted to the way you look addicted to vanity, the, yeah, to vanity and you're posting pictures to get attention or you're somebody that when people are telling you, you're, you look a certain way, like if you don't need to lose weight, but you're constantly telling yourself that you're overweight. Like if you're in that cognitive that place of cognitive dissonance just know that you're not alone and two there there's definitely resources to mm-hmm. to help you out cheryl obviously is somebody who's on the forefront at talking about this kind of stuff as are many others because it's yeah. an important conversation because this i think this is a stone that kind of or this is a conversation i think goes on like untalked about a lot because there's a lot of shame totally and, and we that's ha- the thing yeah. and that's where it starts is that right. shame it's like you know, Brene Brown says it great, but like, it's just the, sh- no one wants to feel it. Right. But that's another feeling. It's like, you have to feel it. Cause if you, if you don't feel shame, then you definitely are a sociopath. <laughs> you right. know, it's like, you have to have that, those feelings, but then also no, it's just one day at a time. And that's another great thing about the 12 step program. It's like, because it's fucking overwhelming, life is overwhelming. And if you can just think of one hour at a time or one foot in front of the other, or one day at a time, it just makes everything. When you make short-term goals like that, I find it to be a lot easier to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cheryl, this has been awesome. I've enjoyed having this conversation with you, picking your brain and just getting deep about your life story and just some of the lessons, you know, some of the things that you've learned along the way about yourself and how you're using your message and everything that you've gone through to, to help other people. So like, what's next for you? You've got 23 seasons on dancing with the stars. You know, you, you've won multiple times. I believe I got dancing with the stars in the first place was to be able to have a platform to share my story. And that's something that I'm so passionate about is mental health and being able just to talk about it. Cause there's such stigma obviously behind it and the uncomfortable conversations are still very uncomfortable for some people. So I definitely want to touch more about mental health in general, but also I have a clothing line coming out, a dance inspired loungewear line coming out on September 16th. So it's only for girls, unfortunately, but it's definitely more for just women of all different shapes and sizes. And it's loungewear. Cause like 
I would love, I would secretly want to be under quarantine again because I loved it so much because that's how much I'm a loner in that sense. <laughs> but like, I think people are so used to wearing loungewear still. It's like, it's really hard for me at least to go out there and get all dressed up. Like I feel a little odd still going back into the real world. So. Right. Awesome. Well, I will make sure to include the links to all that stuff in the show notes yeah. as well as like the, your pretty messed up podcast, podcast. Yep. Um, which people definitely got to check out with her and then Renee. Elizondo mm-hmm. and AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, which is a great podcast. Mm-hmm. And they, they have uh, deep conversations and, and try to you know, you know, really curate a conversation that, that mm-hmm. helps the people that are listening to, to their show, much like this one. And so I guess like the, the last question now that I have, now that you told me about the new season of Dancing with the Stars is like, so it seems like this, this year, this summer has been a big opportunity of growth for you. It's been a big window where you've really taken some time to work on yourself. Are you going to approach this season to address like your insecurities and everything going on inside of you any differently? Or are you just going to kind of go with the flow? No, no, no. I have to approach this season differently because the way I've been approaching it hasn't been necessarily something that I can be able to close this chapter and say, okay, I, you know, I walked out feeling good about myself and there is a way that I need. And mind you, I'm nervous as shit about it because it's like, the living in the uncertainty has to be okay with me. Like I, there's so many things that I would have normally done pre-production, right. That like I would have gone and I would have killed somebody for this information. Right. But I've actually, for the first time, just let it be just like, I don't have any control over any of it and just like be okay with what it is. And that's really hard because when it comes talk to me in two months from now, you know, I have to constantly check myself because you know, if I start veering that way, it's like, it's an addiction. Like I just, my brain only knows that way. So it's like a habit. I have to untrain it and build a new habit and new way of thinking. And that's hard. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's hard. And I think just like, you know, you've kind of reminded me of the rest of your story. It's just like, you have this innate ability to, to humble yourself now and, and really just have like peace and gratitude for your journey and knowing that like, okay, sometimes when, when things haven't worked, it's time to take a step to the left instead of a step to the right. And it's, it's admirable that you're doing that again with this upcoming season and we'll be cheering for you. And, and hopefully but if you see me step to the, wherever you better call me, Doug, and say, you better check yourself. Missy. <laughs> I will. I will for sure. I'll definitely call <laughs> you out. If I, if I see you uh, acting up, well, Cheryl, this has been awesome. And for those listening, um, this is going to be an episode where you're definitely going to want to you know hit the pause button a few times with different parts of, of Cheryl's story and her message and some of the things she talked about. And what I'd like you to do, which is what I always invite y'all to do, is to take a screenshot and tag Cheryl, tag myself with a takeaway. Maybe it was something that she said about her childhood. Maybe it was something she said about Dancing with the Stars. Maybe it was something she said about body image, relationships, whatever it was. Tag Cheryl, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.